How about we pray as we look at this together? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have spoken in your word and that we have access to it. Thank you. There are so many translations and good translations. Uh, we pray that um, we'll take this Bible seriously uh, and that we'll get to know you well as we discover more and more of you in the scriptures. Be with us now as we look at this last uh, episode in this series, The Bible in Ten. Uh, give us understanding, but we pray more than that. You'll help us to trust you more and more. Amen. Well, we've been on a journey. Uh, if this is your first time with us, uh, let me tell you what you've missed. You've missed everything in the Bible up to the last two chapters. Uh, and that's okay, uh, because we're going to put things together now in the last of these talks. We're going to look at where everything has been headed from the very beginning, way back in Genesis, right through and now climaxing in Revelation chapters 21 and 22. Uh, you may or may not be familiar with this part of the Bible. Uh, I remember one guy who I encouraged to read the scriptures. He read through Matthew, Mark and Luke and John, got back to me and said, it's a bit repetitive, keeps talking about the same thing. He worked his way through the letters and then he got to the book of Revelation and he came back and said, that's the weirdest thing I have ever read. And uh, maybe you feel that as well. We haven't worked through the book, so there we haven't really kind of looked at any of the clues for how to read this book well. And we might do that on another occasion, but I hope the things that we look at tonight will kind of make sense to us. And the main thing that we need to keep in our minds to understand this well is Genesis chapters 1 and 2. You've got Genesis chapter 1 and 2 in mind, the first two chapters of the Bible, and Revelation 21 and 22, the last two chapters of the Bible, and you're going to see two bookends that connect with each other in all kinds of extraordinary ways. We've been looking at history. We've been looking at how the Bible is actually God's plan and purpose through the world, how people rejected God and how God put a plan in place to bless people. And the climax of that was Jesus. We got to Jesus three weeks ago and we saw that Jesus enters into history. He lives a life, perfect relationship with God, but then he chooses to die. The purpose of Jesus' coming was to give his life as a ransom for many. God accepts his sacrifice for us. God raises him from the dead. And now we're looking at the final chapter in what Jesus has done. And uh, if you open your Bibles to Revelation 21 and 22, if you've closed them back up, or if you've got a little phone app, you might like to open that up, because we'll look at a few parts of it. But what we're seeing here is more than simply history. We're looking at how God's plans and purposes for fulfilment actually impact our lives now. I mean, there's lots of things that you can read in history, and they're just dead and gone. What we're looking at is something that should shape radically the lives that we live now. Um, not only is it more than history, but it is fulfilment. And uh, as our salt group met during the week, one of the things that we did on, on Monday night when we gathered was to share some of the impact of seeing how the whole Bible kind of fitted together on each of us. And I shared on that occasion that this is actually one of the key things that keeps me believing that God is faithful and true, that you couldn't put this piece and puzzle together if you didn't have God there. There are just so many threads, like a tapestry woven together in Jesus, 
from the very beginning to the very end. And so it, it gives me confidence that God is true, that God's word is true, that therefore God's purposes are true. And uh, maybe for some of you that's the same. Well, let's have a look then. Over the course of this series, and particularly if you look at those little um, pictures down the bottom of your handouts, you'll notice that we've been following the theme of God's people in God's place under God's rule of blessing. God's people in God's place under God's rule of blessing. We saw that in the garden. We see it threatened when they're kicked out of the garden. We see God putting plans in place uh, through bringing people into a new land, installing a king, and then, of course, that goes backwards and they end up in exile. And then he brings it about through Jesus. And we're going to see how this kind of all comes together with these themes tonight. So let's, uh, let's dig into it. Um, so the thing to keep in mind as we look at these two chapters is Genesis 1 and 2. All right. So in Genesis 1 and 2, you've got God creating everything. Everything is good. Uh, God walking in the garden with the man and the woman. In chapter 2, he's talking with them. He's relating to them. And then, of course, Genesis 3, things go badly. The people reject God. Uh, they, they hide from God. They're now ashamed. And God casts them out of the garden and he cuts them off from the tree of life. So the picture is they're created to live in this beautiful harmony with God and then God, because they reject him, God casts them out of his presence and they come under God's curse. And the language of curse occurs a number of times in Genesis 3. So having worked our way through the Bible, where do things end here? Well, I'm going to dip into this and I encourage you to read through the two chapters later. Uh, for two reasons. One is, if you're reading right through the Bible in 70, then this is the two chapters to read for today. Who's actually made it through, by the way? Um, some of you have? Put your hands up. You, I think well, the rest of us should give them a clap, don't you? Read through the Bible in 70. This is excellent. Um, a, a good thing to do to see how the whole picture goes. So, of course, you'll be reading this today to finish that. But for the rest of us, uh, it would be good just to... Uh, put these pieces together into context. So what we see in chapter 21, and I'll read the first few verses again, a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And then listen to verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. There's a lot packed into verse 3, isn't there? Um, but it's really all repetition. L listen to it, and, and I'll just break it up. Because we're actually told that God will be with his people five times in one verse. So, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, one. And he will dwell with them, two. And they will be his people, three. And God himself will be with them, four. And be their God, five. I mean, I take it where to see this thickly, densely, this is important. 
God is now with his people and he's going to stick with his people. He's going to stay with his people. He will not be separated from his people. As he was in Genesis 2, so he will be again, completely. No threat. God will be with his people. There'll be no more separation. There'll be closeness. There'll be a connection. There'll be community together. But then there's an even more intimate way of expressing this. Don't know if you picked it up. Back in verse 2, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. It's that phrase there, a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Well, who's the bride and who's the husband? Well, if you come down a little bit further uh, to verse 9, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. So, so the husband there is the lamb. And the lamb is continually, through the book of Revelation, uh, a description of Jesus. He is the lamb who looked like he had been slain. Jesus is the lamb. He is the husband. The bride is to be married to the lamb. That is, this bride will be in a marriage relationship with Jesus. And uh, who then is the bride? Well, you've got to go back in Revelation to see this explained. And back in Revelation chapter 19, we read this, verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. So the the wedding picture there is of God's holy people, Christians, and Jesus. So God's purpose is that we might be united together in a marriage relationship with Jesus forever. It's not just that God will be God and we will his people. It's actually more intimate than that. That we will have a close, personal, connected, not to be separated, covenantal relationship with Jesus. That's what we're made for. And you see, back in the beginning, in Genesis chapter 2, the first thing that we discover that's not good is it's not good for man to be alone. And so God makes a woman for man, and they're united together to become one flesh. And therefore, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and marriage enters into human experience. But what does God intend? Well, he intends a perfect marriage of God and his people, us and the Lamb. So here it is reaching its climax, and it's, it's actually, there's more to it about being God's people. Another picture occurs back in chapter 21 and, uh, and verse 27. Um, so the last verse of this chapter, nothing impure will ever enter it. But, it, but nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, it's not the only time this reference occurs to the Lamb's book of life. But what it's saying is that, is that there's a, a book, if you like, uh, in heaven with names in it. And Jesus says to his disciples on one occasion... Don't be impressed if you can do all kinds of extraordinary miracles. No, the only thing that really matters is whether your name is in the book of life. 
And the picture here is of having our names written in the book of life, which is another picture of clearly being God's people. Now, I was thinking about an illustration for this, and I I thought of a a kind of counter-illustration, if you like. Um, A number of years back when our youngest two kids were teenagers, and uh, I'd been working particularly heavily and and decided it was a good thing for Fiona to go away to this little resort with our two youngest, and I made the booking. And she drove away with the two kids and turned up at this resort to stay, and there was no record of their names. Um, they looked down and the booking wasn't there. Now, I'd paid and I'd booked it in, so I thought this must be the case, but there was no record of their names in that book. Well, so they thought. I'd actually booked for the wrong date. Um, And when that was discovered, they upgraded, because they didn't have the room that I'd booked, to a better room and everything worked out wonderfully, which was, well, was to the salvation of our marriage, really. That uh, (laughs) that, that, That was a good outcome. But the thing about the Lamb's Book of Life is it won't be put under threat by human ignorance, human willfulness, human sinfulness. No, Jesus has written names in that book in his own blood. He's died to rescue people. So there's a picture of Revelation 20 and 21 and 22 showing God's people. They're connected to God. But as we move on and look closely, we see God's people connected to him in God's place. And notably, it's the picture of a new heaven and a new earth. So back in chapter 21, the first verse, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And then down in verse 5, He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. Um, The the good news, really, is that God is going to renew his creation. And you've only got to look at the news on any day to see that that's needed, big time. And you don't even have to look at the news. Just look in the mirror. (laughs) And we, we know that we need renewal. And not just physically, but look in the mirror of our own hearts and we know that we need renewal. And the picture of the end here is of God restoring everything and making everything right, of a new heaven and a new earth. And God hasn't given up on the creation. He's he's planning to renew it and create something that is blessed and perfect. And that's the image that we get here. I saw the first heaven and the first earth. In other words, there's a picture of everything and it passes away. And it gets replaced with the new thing that is prepared by God himself. So we're looking forward to things being put right. We can't make things better, can we? I mean, we just live from disaster to disaster, whether it's floods or or whether it's the mites that destroy the honey industry or whether it's the fire ants that are uh, coming down from Queensland or whether it's the fire risk or tsunami risk in the Pacific. or It's just everywhere and it's all the time. And it's always been that way. And the Bible says that we live in a world that has been subjected to frustration. God has made it that way because he wants people to turn back to him. We know that it's not right. 
And so we're called to turn back to God where God is planning to make things right. A couple of years ago, we were at a church camp and we looked at the book of Romans, chapter 8. And in that, we saw that the whole creation is groaning as in the pains of childbirth. And it's a picture of this world finding everything painful and difficult, but it's, it's in anticipation of new birth. See, the pains of childbirth, it, it's, it's not just that, that Paul was looking for an illustration and thinks, okay, what's painful? Well, I don't know it personally, but I've heard that childbirth is painful, so I'll use that. No, childbirth pains are in anticipation of, of something new, and that's what God is doing. He's bringing about a new creation and a a new heavens and a new earth. That's what God is doing. And everything will be put right. The decay, the frustration, the the famine, the warfare, the strife, the bitterness, the, the hatred, the lies, everything will be destroyed and the new creation will be as it should be. And and I think we need to take hold of this picture that that there is a new creation which is absolutely right and it will be perfect when I was growing up the whole idea of heaven used to to be honest it used to bore me because I'd been given this book and it had a picture of God with this long white beard sitting on a cloud and there were people up there wearing nighties and some of them were playing harps and I used to think well if that's what heaven's like it doesn't sound like much fun but I hadn't really been reading the Bible to discover Because God is planning a new heavens and a new earth where things are as we will, well, it will fulfill our heart's desire because God has created the new heavens and the new earth to be just right. Well, there's other images of of the new creation as well. There's the image of the holy city. Um, There's all kinds of images here. I I let... um, Warwick off the hook, he didn't have to read through all of those verses. But a lot of those verses, they, they kind of paint a picture of the glorious temple. Um, and the images there of the precious stones and the numbers are significant. The number 12 keeps coming up, 12, 12, 12, 12,000 times 12 and so on. Um, and, and numbers are, are really an important way of understanding the book of Revelation. Um, it's picture language that's going on. And the number 12, well, it's the number of God's people. God's people here. They will be gathered together with God. Um, you, you've got this city that descends. Uh, in verse 16, the city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. And he measured the city with a rod and he found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and as high as it is long. And the angel measured the wall using human measurement and it was 144 cubits thick. Now, you might try and picture that. All right, here's a picture of, of the, new, the, the new heavenly city coming down and it's going to be very hard to map it because you can draw a map of how to get from here to here if it's two-dimensional, but how do you draw a map when it's three-dimensional? And this is a cube. So the holy city is coming down and it's a cube. And the numbers that define its measurements are made up of 12s. So you've got 12 and 12 and 12. Friends, don't try and paint it. Don't try and map it. Have in your head 12, 12, 12. These are God's people, 12 tribes, 12 apostles. And when you think about a cube, there were two cubes in the Old Testament. Remember where they were? 
There was one in the tabernacle and there was one in the temple. It was the most holy place. So when you think about something that's laid out with, with numbers that remind you of God's people in the shape of a cube that reminds you of the most holy place where only the priest could go into the presence of God, this is the kind of image that we've got of God restoring the new creation. We also see here not only is there to be a, a holy city, which is God's holy city, but there will not be a temple. Um, if you look down at, uh, at chapter 21, verse 22, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. See, what, what was the temple? The temple was the place where you met with God, where you went to meet with God. But if we are with God all the time, then we don't need a temple because the Lamb and God the Father are the temple. But there's another image that I want to point out to you, and it's, it's wonderful in showing how we get from the beginning to the end. And uh, there's a lot of others as well, and I'm really just skipping over them. But I, I want to draw your attention to the tree of life. So if you come to chapter 22 and verses 1 and 2, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Um, now, it's an unusual picture here, but it does remind us of the beginning, doesn't it? Genesis 1 and 2, the tree of life. And the tree of life is absolutely essential. And the people were free to eat from the tree of life. Adam and Eve, take as much fruit from that tree as you want until they took the fruit from the one tree that they were told not to and then what did God do? He cut them off from the tree of life. Now, there's, there are hints about the tree of life and the river coming from the temple and so on that you'll see through the Old Testament. The book of Ezekiel is helpful with this. But you get all these images coming together here, but again, it will be hard to paint. This is one tree, not, a, not an orchard, and this one tree is on both sides of the river, and the river is in the middle of, of the street. You, you see, there's different images, kind of a controlled imagination, somebody said, with an understanding of the Old Testament is the way to read this book, not to try and map it out. And what you discover here about the tree of life is that this tree of life now is bearing 12 crops of fruit. In other words, it's going out to all of God's people, the number 12 again. And it, it does so every month. And what's more, it's going out for the healing of the nations. Remember the promise to Abraham? He would be a blessing and through him a blessing to the nations. You see, here with this tree, God is bringing about something really special. He, he's bringing about his good purpose. And, and we see it again in verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. And then it gets mentioned again down in verse 19. If you take away the words of this prophecy, God will take away any share in the tree of life. Now, I want to point out something about the tree of life. Um, if you remember, if you were with us a couple of weeks back, uh, when we looked at Galatians chapter 3... 
The NIV talked about cursed is anyone who's hung on a pole and the other English Bibles described it as cursed is anyone who was hung on a tree. Do you remember that? The, the, the same idea comes up in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. So you've got an image there in Galatians 3 of Jesus being hung on a tree and in 1, Timothy, in 1 Peter 2 of Jesus bearing our sins in his body on the tree. The most common word for tree, now this is a little bit technical, a little bit nerdy, a little bit kind of ancient Greeky. Uh, the most common word for tree will probably be familiar to you. It, it's the word dendron. So you get plants, rhododendron, right? It's a something tree. I'm not sure what the rhoda is. Probably a rose tree or something like that. Um, probably not. But tree, that's the common word for, for tree, dendron, right? That's not the word that's here. The word in Revelation 22 is zulon. It's an unusual word for tree. And it only occurs in two other places. He was hung on a tree. Cursed is the one who was hung on a tree. See, what we're discovering here is that the tree of life, to be properly understood, is the tree on which the lamb hung. The, the tree of, of Jesus' death is actually our tree of life. It's through coming to this tree that we enter into eternal life. It's a wonderful picture. You can do a whole biblical theology of trees. Um, there you go. There's something you could do. Sorry. Um, anyone else into nurseries could do that as well. All right. So the tree of life, the way to the tree of life is tasting of the tree of death. So we've got God's people and they're in God's place, and it's a place of harmony and perfection and blessing. But we also have God's rule at the end of Scripture, God's rule of blessing for the sake of people. And uh, let me just point out some of these things. So here in verse 3, No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. Um, there's, right through the book of Revelation, you've got this image of the throne of God the one who sits upon the throne and the lamb. And it's a picture of God's kingdom. You have thrones in kingdoms. You don't arbitrarily have thrones in random places. So the whole of this is a picture of, of God's people in God's place under God's rule. And the throne of God and the lamb is what's on view here. And, and no doubt at all in Revelation who the king is. There's, there's absolutely no query over the fact that God and the Lamb are making all things right. There is no longer a curse. And if you remember back in Genesis chapter 3, the, the curse is worked out five times uh, in relation to childbirth, in relation to work, in relation to the cre creation and so on. There's no longer any curse. Um, it's a breath of fresh air. Uh, in, in Galatians 3, again, we saw that, that the curse is undone through that tree of life. Uh, there are no more tears. Back in, in Revelation 21, verse 24, I think this is my wife's favourite verse. I might have this wrong. You could ask her afterwards. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Friends, I think the, the older I get, the more I appreciate these verses. 
Um, I, I know that some of you have, have been through all kinds of tough times. Sickness and, and broken relationships and struggles in life. There will no longer be a curse. There will be no more tears. God will wipe away all these tears. Um, as we think about the people that we know, people who are struggling with, with all kinds of things. I visited just recently a friend of mine who's been bedridden for over 24 years now with chronic fatigue. And, and he looks forward to the day when there'll be no more suffering, when everything will be put right. Those who live with and struggle with, with chronic illnesses. You see, God knows what you go through. And as you go through it, he goes with you. And the promise is that there will be a day when that suffering is removed, when that pain is gone, when there are no more tears, when there's no more bereavement, when there's no more loss. And then we see this image. The, the day of healing will be a, a day of the water of life being poured out. Look at verses um, 1 and 2 from Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing down from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him and they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and there'll be no more night. So here's a wonderful picture of, of refreshment um, as Revelation kind of pulls back the curtain and, and we get a look at what God's plans are. It's about God's people in God's place enjoying God's rule of blessing. And so as we, as we finish this series, I want to ask you, do, do you look forward to that day? Are you anticipating a future which is good, which is really good? You see, God pictures this in so many blessed ways. The wedding of the Lamb. No more curse, no more suffering, no more pain, endless life. The fresh spring water of knowing God and being satisfied. But that's not the end, is it? There's something else to say. Because as you look at this and as we draw this series to an end, the Bible finishes with a call to action. Um, Come, Lord Jesus, is the call. You see it down in, in verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. See, it finishes with a prayer. Come, Lord Jesus. There aren't a lot of prayers to Jesus in the Bible, but here is one. And it's a simple prayer. Please come back. Come, Lord Jesus. That's the prayer. Do you pray that prayer? When faced with, with, with suffering and difficulty and pain and tragedy, when things aren't the way that, that deep down we know that they should be, do we ask Jesus 
to return. Jesus himself taught that, didn't he? In the, in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. On earth as it is in heaven. I mean, how is this ultimately going to be fulfilled? Well, with Jesus returning, that's how. And we look forward to the day when Jesus will return. We don't know when that day is, but it could be any day. We've been in the last days since Jesus returned to the Father. And he could come back at any time. And so we're called to pray. And as we pray, Lord Jesus, come, two things happen. The Bible says that, that God listens to our prayers and responds. It, it, it actually, God involves us in the, in the bringing about of the return of his son. But there's something else that happens in us as we pray. Come, Lord Jesus. And that is, we focus on the most important thing yet to happen. And that is, we start to think and speak and act in the light of the end when Jesus will return. But it's not simply, come, Lord Jesus. There's another plea here, and that is, come to Jesus. See, Jesus is welcoming people to come to him. Um, this, this is a, a call to others to come. Look at verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. And let the ones who wish to take the free gift of the water of life come. Right at the end of the Bible, there's an invitation. If, if you've read through the Bible, and maybe you have, or if you've read it through in 10 chunks or 70 chunks, if you've seen how God's story is history from the beginning to the end and how it's fulfilled in Jesus, there's an invitation to you at the end. Come to Jesus. Actually, take hold of what Jesus is offering. And, and the Bible says that, that God has done what he has done for his own sake. He's done it for Jesus' sake. He's done it for your sake. That you might enter into God's presence, enjoying God's blessing forever. And if you've not come to the point where you've put your trust in Jesus, let me urge you to come to Jesus. And for those of us who have, the Spirit, notice verse 17, have a look at this, the Spirit and the Bride say, come. Who's, who's saying come there? God's Holy Spirit? Yep. God's Spirit is an evangelist. That is, he... He speaks out his gospel message and draws people in. But he's an evangelist with the bride, with the church, with God's people. We have a message. We've got a message for Bonnie Hills, Dunbogan, 